morning. Glad to see you. Um, we are still in Matthew, um, but I'm 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 being so rebellious today because um, we're gonna we're gonna tackle the passage that we're on in Matthew 20. But today we're gonna study it over in Mark's account because um, that's just the kind of deal break the rule breaker I am. Brandon told me this morning. I'm like, you know, so them, are you ready? He's like, are you ready to teach? I'm like, yep, I'm feeling good. He's like, well, if you're going to teach in church, at least you have your head covered. And I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> little Bible humor. It's fine. I'm a girl. Okay. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, for those of you who have your Bibles. And uh, was that private? I'm so sorry. You should know that when it comes to me, there's no privacy. Everything is material. Okay. All conversations are material. Um, All right, let's start right in Mark 46, and this is what it says. Um, Then they came to Jericho. So I just want to pause for one little second. Um, You've probably heard of Jericho. You probably remember Jericho. It was um, one of the most ancient cities um, in the Holy Lands. It was the first major city that was conquered, right, when the Hebrews um, came into the promised land after the exodus, and remember that Joshua walked around the wall seven times, Rahab was the insider accomplice, and the walls fell down, at which point the city of Jericho was cursed by Joshua. And you can read all this really lovely scripture in um, the Old Testament. It basically says whoever rebuilds the city um, is cursed, and so was their firstborn son, which actually um, came to be. And then during Jesus' lifetime, Herod the Great built a winter palace in Jericho. So you probably remember Herod, right? The one who tried to kill baby Jesus. Um, And so this seems like probably a good city to avoid. Like if you're Jesus, there's just nothing good here. His greatest enemy is residing here at the time. Um, But here we find Jesus very purposefully going out of his way to travel to Jericho. This is about 10 days before the cross just so you know where we're at in his timeline. At this point, nothing is wasted. Everything is very much on point. I mean, he's down to hours. Um, So you can't imagine that anything at this point is not intentional, is not deliberate, is not setting us up. And um, I'm so grateful that he went to Jericho because out of that trip, we got two really important stories that have mattered um, to the body of Christ for so long. We got the story of Zacchaeus um, and we got the story here of Bartimaeus that we're going to read today. And so so glad that Jesus went. So let me read you this passage, um, and then we're going to back up and sort of figure it out where it's nestled. Um, so Mark ten forty six, and the reason we're reading out of Mark is just simply because he gives us a few more details than Matthew gave us, some that are really important, some additional language that I really want to latch onto this morning. So then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight 
and followed Jesus along the road. So knowing for sure at this point in the last days of his life that Jesus was always purposeful, right, and always deliberate, always aiming for a teaching moment, not just for his disciples, but for all of us who would read this later, um, I think let's back up just a hair and see where is this story settled in? What is, what's in the room? Like what, what's been happening um, just prior to this encounter with Bartimaeus? Um, and I think you'll see some intentionality in Jesus' word choice um, because he really knew how to teach a lesson. So this is what happened just before, just the previous couple of days. This is the previous incident. So just go back in the same chapter, starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, you remember them, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Right, same question. He asked, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So this was the scene that was sort of lurking in the room just before they met Bartimaeus on the road. So let's contrast these two scenarios that were literally adjacent to one another. So first of all, we've got these two different sets of people. The first set involves James and John. So they're brothers, right? The sons of Zebedee. Their mom was Salome. A lot of scholars think that Salome was Mary's cousin, um, which would make James and John second cousins of Jesus. So they think there's a pretty tight family connection here. Um, Matthew's account tells us that Salome made this request, that their mother came to him and said, I want you to do something for my sons. I would like to see them at your right and left hand um, in glory. But Mark tells us the brothers did it. Either way, they're in cahoots. All right. Either way, I, I'm guessing that Salome was one of the women who constantly attended Jesus. We see her laced throughout the New Testament, and um, she loved him and he loved her. So I'm thinking that they probably sent her and was like, he's not going to tell mom no. Right? Like, he, he likes her too much. So we'll send her and act like we don't have anything to do with it. Um, but however it went down, um, this is where we're at, that his... His two of his disciples have come to him and asked for this sort of positioning. Um, now, I think about all we've studied leading up to this point, and you know, it's just a fact that at, at this point, um, Jesus had explained the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom and how differently his kingdom was going to look than the one they understood to these guys a hundred different ways. I mean, in every which way, by example, by word, by deed. He had pulled kids into the midst and said, be like this kid. Um, he had grabbed kids from the outer edges and said, let these kids come to me. Stop sending them away. He had told endless parables. He had healed all kinds of people that wouldn't normally merit his attention. And so, I mean, nobody had as much information to the ways of Jesus as these two did. They really had the best chance intellectually um, of understanding Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. Literally just before this happened, he had described 
um, his impending death and resurrection to a T. Exactly what was going to happen. He included the details about being flogged, being killed, how many days. I mean, this is clear and explicit at this point. But to be fair, when I was just thinking about them this week and studying and just trying to remember what this felt like to them at the time, because we have the benefit of hindsight. Um, So everything seems doubly clear to us as we can read backwards. But at the time, it was also still a little bit confusing because just a few days before this, Jesus had told them in Matthew 19, actually, that they were going to sit on thrones with him, right? So which is it? You know, what's happening here? I think they were understandably a little bit confused about what Jesus's kingdom was going to look like, what the reign and rule was going to look like, and what their role in it was going to be. But here's what they knew at this point. They maybe did not understand it. It was confusing and nuanced and complicated, but they'd figured out at this point that in some way they had a real shot at glory. They didn't know exactly how, they didn't know exactly when and where, but they thought, we have a chance and we better seize the day, right? Let's stake our claim in this kingdom. So that's what we have. We've got these these disciples who knew Jesus so well and had been exposed to his kingdom in every way. Then on the other hand, we have Bartimaeus, okay? And so scripture tells us here that Bartimaeus was a poor, blind beggar. Which what we know from his culture at the time, and really probably be the same now, he was an outcast in every possible way. Um, In in Jesus' generation, um, it was assumed that people who were blind were cursed by God for either their sin or their parents' sin. That this was a a punishment. In fact, even the disciples thought this. Um, In John 9, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that was just a common knowledge. So, I mean, he was truly considered at the bottom of the barrel. And he was labeled unclean, obviously, um, because of his condition, which also means he was not permitted in the temple. So there was absolutely no mobile upward mobility for Bartimaeus. Absolutely none. He had no shot. He was not, he did not have a grip on even the bottom rung of the ladder. He had zero chance of power, prestige, rank, class, authority. Um, That was not an available option to him at all. He literally had nothing at this point to gain through any worldly channels. He was just like not even on the map. So these are these two very different sorts of people. We've got these ones who feel like We've got glory of some sort within our reach. And then we've got this other one who is just suffering in every single way and outcast in every single way. So there's this sort of, they each give a a little bit of a setup to their request to Jesus, kind of the pre-request. And again, let's compare them. What it tells us in verse 35 by James and John, this is their setup. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Matthew's account, who has Salome going to Jesus and asking her, her first word is, listen, promise, right? I'm going to say something, but before I do, I want your promise that you're going to do it, okay? So that is the way that they are going to approach Jesus. Bartimaeus, in verse 47, this is his approach. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's his opening line. And it just, you can see so clearly that these were only a couple of days apart. This enormous difference between coming to Jesus out of a sense of entitlement 
and coming to him out of true humility. It's so different the way these guys have come to the Savior. And I thought about them so much this week. And it just occurs to me that it's been true forever, then and now, that the greater the potential for glory is to a human being, the harder it is to be humble. It really is. There, it's the difference between having something to gain and having nothing to lose. Right? That is how they came to Jesus. That was their spiritual post- posture. And, and it, it translates to us, honestly, because those of us at the top of the ladder, and that is us, I mean, that is us. If we're going to look over across the landscape of the world, we are at the top of the food chain. We have every advantage and privilege that the rest of the world is hungry for and longing for. We're safe. We're fed. Um, we are homed. We, we, that is us. Those of us at the top of the ladder are going to have the hardest time with this. Jesus said that in so many ways because the more we gain the more we feel like we earned it, right? And, and the more we achieve, the more we want to protect it all. And, and the, the more we rise, the further we get from the bottom, which is where Jesus said he could always be found, right? Here's the thing. The more we have, the harder it is to count it all as loss. I'm thinking about James and John and what a, what a transition has been. Y'all, three years ago, James and John were in a fishing boat with their dad. And they'd hit their ceiling. And now, just three years later, they're demanding thrones in glory. Right? That really escalated. Okay? That really got out of hand. It's so true for us, too. We are going to have to, we as a people, are going to have to fight to maintain humility and resist the impulse to use Jesus to get what we want. Loving Jesus and being loved by him is going to have to be its own reward. When I look at these two requests, I just think, let have mercy be the cry of this people. May that be the way we always approach Jesus. So here's the question he asked both times. Um, First of all, in verse 36... With the brothers, and then later in verse 51 with Bartimaeus, intentionally, obviously. What do you want me to do for you? Right? What do you want me to do for you? It's really a piercing question, actually. Um, It's just been rattling around my brain um, this week. What we want, basically, is a smart question to ask. Because that is what says everything about the state of our heart. Right? So if we could strip away everything that we say, um, even some of the things that we do, the things that we say that we're about, and we burrow down really deeply into what do we really want? What do we really want from Jesus? What do we really want from this life? What do we really want in our families? I think that's where we'll figure out what kind of disciple we are. Okay, That's the truth of it. That is the truth of it. That's where none of the packaging can prop it up. Um, that is really where we find out where we are in front of Jesus. Kierkegaard um, made an interesting distinction um, that I read about, that it's sort of between those who, this is how he puts it, between those who esteem Christ 
and between those who follow him. And the way that he says the difference is that there's a, there's a huge group of people who esteem Jesus, right? And we, we lift him higher and higher, and we talk really lovingly about him. We give him a lot of praise. We sing a lot of words. But it's sort of the whole idea that if we continue to lift Jesus higher, that we can actually grab onto his coattails and ride up with him, right? It's self-serving in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think about how... For example, right now, like, a lot of the presidential candidates are esteeming Jesus, right? And it's not because they are. It's not because they love him or follow him, but they, they are using him, right? Where they want to tell us how much they love Jesus and his ways, but it is simply to rise up with him, right? It's a pandering. It's not really true. And then the difference between esteeming him and following him, if we follow Jesus— then we are living like he lived. I mean, it literally means to follow him, to walk behind his feet where he walked, to love the way that he loved, to go to the sorts of places that he went to, basically just to live like he lived. That's following Jesus. That goes way beyond our words. That goes way beyond using Jesus as a commodity um, to get something for gain. So for me, it's like the difference between what I see between some of our candidates who are just idiots Oh, that wasn't nice. Um, I meant to not say that. Um, but I, I mean, like, I contrast that even last week or the week before, whenever it was, when Pope Francis was here in the United States. And to me, that is a man who follows him, right? Right? Thank you for lo- I'm so obsessed with Pope Francis. Sorry. It's unashamedly. But, I mean, he really follows him. He, is, he has gone to hard and dark places, and he rejects power and position in order to be with sick people and poor people and kids. To me, that is what Jesus looks like. It's, do you see the difference between esteeming and follow him? But here's the hope for all of us, because I'm just we are all guilty sometimes of esteeming Jesus instead of following him. But this is what I've seen in my own life, in the life of our church, in the life of my friends. There's hope for us, even if we find ourselves on the wrong side of that equation, because what happens is the more we follow Jesus, the more our wants change. So when Jesus says, what do you want from me? Honestly, the answer may just be crap right now. But if we follow him long enough, it's so weird. You wake up one day and find out that you want the same things that Jesus wants, right? And that you are loving in the same ways that Jesus loved. You don't know when it happened. It's like alchemy. It's magic. Um, But Jesus can win over our own stubborn souls. And so there's a difference between the way that we approach him and what we want from him. So... Let's move on. Um, where's Gavin? I told him in the car I was going to say something about him, so sorry about that. Sorry for the short notice. Um, when Gavin was in fifth grade, he's a senior now, tear, hold me. Um, when he was in fifth grade, he came home one day and he said, Mom, I don't know if you know this, but in fifth grade, there's a ranking system. And I was like, oh, I do know. I mean, I'm like, bro, there's been a ranking system in fifth grade for a really long time. And I said, where do you, what do you think your rank is? Like, how are you ranked among your fifth grade peers? And he thought for a second, and he goes, well, I'm pretty sure that I'm in the upper percentage of the average rank. (laughs) (laughs) We have literally said this for years now. I'll be like, Brandon will do something nice. I'm like, that's upper percentage of the average rank right there. 
I think that's what we have here in this scenario. Um, this is a ranking system, right? This is a pecking order. These guys are trying to beat out their friends to who, for who can get to Jesus first and get the glory, you know, before somebody else stakes claim. And so when Jesus says, what do you want from me? James and John tell him in verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. All right. Well, that's what they really wanted. He asked, they told. Glory, favoritism, position, respect. That's what we really want. Okay, they didn't ask Jesus, how can you use us? But rather, how can you reward us? That's how they came to him that day. And at the very center of that demand is pride. Right, that old devil. I wish I could not identify with this. Right? Just proud conceit of their own merit. Listen, bro, we've earned this. Right? Um, Just proud, honestly, contempt of their brothers. Notice they didn't bring their brothers along with them. They left them behind and pulled Jesus aside. Um, Proud desire of honor. It's the same old thing that has been going on with humanity forever. Jesus, make me awesome. Right? Like, I mean, with you, of course. With you. So I love Jesus' response because I find it tender. You would think that 10 days before the cross, if your best followers are coming to you with this crap, you might lose it. Right? Like, I'm out of time, and uh, clearly nothing has stuck. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I feel like this response is so generous. But So what he does is he responds by talking about benefactors. And you can look in chapter 10, verse 41. This is how Jesus answers. Well, first of all, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Well, yeah. Okay. And that wasn't because, like, you shouldn't be bothering Jesus with these pesky requests. It's because they were getting left out. Right? They wanted, they wanted to be in the upper percentage of the average rank. All right. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. A benefactor was a title that was assumed by a lot of rulers in Syria and Egypt and Rome. And it was a real display of honor. Um, But it had no real um, bearing on actual service rendered to the people. Um, These were not, it sounds generous, a benefactor, but it really wasn't. It was simply a a title of honor. So these rulers that he's mentioning were very consumed with promotion and with accumulation. And basically the people that they led were simply a means to an end. They were just a bargaining chip for more, more power, more rank. Um, And so here Jesus talks about them, and that was such a familiar group to them. Nobody liked the benefactors. Everyone felt used by the benefactors and under their rule, where they were getting all the gain for the work of the people that they were over. So Jesus puts that example right in front of them and then says, listen, you guys are just like this. You want to be served. But the fact is, in my economy, my disciples actually do the serving forever. There's not an end to it. It's not that you serve until you can finally become a benefactor. It's not that you serve so you can finally get to the top when someone will serve you. That is our life. Those are our marching orders. And you guys, it is so incredibly hard 
for people, even really good people, even people who had spent three solid years with Jesus to resist the eroding power of dominion. It's so hard. It's so hard that Jesus has basically banished it from his entire church. He doesn't make a little bit of room for it. He doesn't say, here is how to sort of keep it in balance. He basically says, this has no place in the life of a disciple. And this is the fact. Pride and dominion and self-serving authority, it cannot be conquered with sheer will. It can't. Otherwise, the disciples would have conquered it at this point. They could not understand and receive and practice this with just their minds. And what Jesus is saying to us here is that pride can only be conquered with actual service rendered to other people. It's the magic pill. It's interesting. I spent so much time this week thinking about this. Serving has this dual effect of ministering to other people and actually saving our own souls in the process accidentally. Um, I read this story this week of a woman named Marion Mill. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Um, She was born in the early 1900s in uh, Hungary, and she was royal. She was born into the palace. In fact, her very first spoon was solid gold. Okay, Um, And she was sent to all the best schools, went to the very best college in Vienna. And when she was in college, she met a a doctoral student. Um, His name was Otto Preminger. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, and they, they started this very fairy tale life of wealth and of privilege. So they married and they moved to the United States, to Hollywood specifically, because she had a dream of becoming an actress. Okay, so she starts into this Hollywood life. Otto, her husband, became so enmeshed with it that he eventually quit medicine and became a really famous uh, producer of movies. Um, if you could see his credits, you would recognize many of the things he did in the mid-century. And so, super rich. Super fancy Hollywood life. They had homes all over the world. Um, they entertained every sort of famous people of their, every sort of famous person of their time, dignitaries, movie stars, everyone. But then they also began having like open affairs, each of them. And she got into drugs and addiction, and their marriage just sort of corroded and ended. And eventually she tried to commit suicide three times. Okay, so she is just, none of that worked for her. Zero of it. It produced nothing lasting in her life. So she moved back to Vienna to recover. I mean, it's kind of like last-ditch effort to recover her life. Um, And while she was there, she met another doctor um, who I'm certain that a lot of you have read about. His name was Albert Schweitzer, right? And so he was home on leave from his medical work in a very remote village called um, Lamborini in Africa. And she was so fascinated by this man who had all the credentials. I mean, his potential for wealth um, and success and fame was as high as anybody um, could ever have. Um, and yet, he, he gave that all up to work in this obscure village in Africa. She just couldn't understand it. So she asked him, can I meet with you? So they ended up meeting for like six months, just consistently meeting. And she started learning about what drives him. And he talked about using his life for good and about God and about what it meant to serve and why on earth he would make such a seemingly ridiculous choice with his skill set and with his, his credentials. And so six months later, when he was about to go back, she said, can I just come with you? So nobody expected him to say yes, but he did. And so she went back with him to Africa 
And so this princess that was born in a palace went to this small place completely off everyone else's radar with so much sickness. And she spent the rest of her life there as a nurse alongside of Dr. Schweitzer emptying bedpans and tearing sheets to make bandages. She wrote an autobiography near the end of her life that was called All I Want is Everything. And when she died, Time Magazine quoted her book and said this, where she said this. Albert Schweitzer says that there are two kinds of people. There are the helpers and the non-helpers. I thank God that he allowed me to become a helper because in helping, I found everything. When we read this passage in Mark, we find out that God has purposed that his followers are the helpers. It's not ambiguous. It's not a gray area. But here's what's interesting. God has created us in such a way that we actually will not find fulfillment until we are helping like he told us to. I studied a whole bunch, you guys, be so jealous. I studied this week a whole bunch of science and neurobiology and psychology um, on, on the idea of generosity and serving. Um, I, I'm, like my brain cannot, I can't learn anymore. I just want you to say at 41, learning is too hard for me. But um, one of the articles that it took me so long to wade through And this is what it's called, by the way. This is hilarious. And it's completely out of secular psychology and neuroscience. A simple and general explanation for the evolution of altruism. I will tell you it is neither simple nor general. It's all full of mathematical equations and control groups anyways. Here's the the core of it. Psychologists have have long been very, very puzzled. Um, over how to explain altruism, generosity, giving, serving. Um, Because it's not obvious from a scientific standpoint why any set of genes that encourages self-sacrificial behavior, right, um, could continue without eventually going extinct. Because humans, plants, animal life, were primarily wired for self-preservation, That's how we keep living, right? And so how can serving other people, this is the question posed to scientists, how can serving other people as a way of life even allow us to survive? Why isn't that eventually kind of snuffed out um, by sort of the survival of the fittest approach? So if if Schweitzer calls the two groups helpers and non-helpers, which that works for me, okay? But the, the neuroscience calls them within this study cooperators, and defectors, okay? So within these control groups, there's this set of people who are geared to help the rest of the group and to, to be self-sacrificial. And then there's who are like, forget it, I'm gonna get mine, right? I'm looking out for number one. And they've done all this study of them. And this is interesting. This is what they said. There's only one scientific explanation in which a community of helpers can continue to grow and to thrive despite their neglect of basic self-preservation. And this is, this is what it said. An increase in the frequency of an altruistic genotype, that's what we are, altruistic genotypes. Y'all don't read science. Um, 
requires that carriers of the genotype, the givers, the helpers, are overcompensated for their sacrifice by benefits received from others. On average, cooperators must end up with higher direct benefits than defectors. This is a basic principle of natural selection. Okay, in other words, (laughs) the only way it is mathematically possible for selflessness and generosity to evolve is for selfless people to associate more frequently with other selfless people than with selfish people. Does this make sense? A group of selfless individuals who interact primarily with each other will receive, on average, enough benefits to facilitate the survival of selfless tendencies generation after generation. And here's what this means on a spiritual level. Being the church together is hardwired into our own survival of selfless tendencies over generations. Isn't that neat? Christian community has literally made it possible to serve the world and still come out better than if we just served ourselves. It's scientific. And here's even better news for a lot of us in this room, because I know a lot of our stories in here. This is what the study also said. Based on the concept of association, that when we do this together, this sort of generous living, we actually receive more advantages. Based on this concept of association, we can fully understand the evolution of cooperation in a world in which the concept of kin and family is absent. And so what that means for the church is we can still reap all those outstanding benefits, even if we don't naturally or we didn't ever naturally experience a giving community within our original families. Isn't that good for people who come from a broken home, who come from parents who did not love God or did not love you well or did not know how to love their community? Neuroscience tells us we can create this outside of the bonds of family. We can create the family of helpers and still experience all the group benefits. It's called the church. It is called the church. It was so interesting to basically read a description of the church in the middle of its study on neuroscience. That is how God has created us. Isn't he amazing? He wired us for this. He made sure that there were biological and social and spiritual benefits to living out the kingdom. I'm like, it's enough to baffle all these scientists who struggle to understand how giving our lives away could result in anything other than extinction. But it makes sense to me. So beyond the sort of group benefit, it's really interesting to hear the the doctors and the biologists come up underneath it and support it as well. Because I'm sure you've heard a lot of these studies. They're so fascinating. But it is a physical fact that kinder, generous people actually live longer and healthier lives. It's well documented. Um, People who volunteer experience fewer aches and pains. Okay, Helping others. This is interesting, protects our overall health twice as much as aspirin protects against heart disease. It has a very physical effect on our bodies. Um, giving produces endorphins in our brains that psychologists call a helper's high, um, in which 
It's like a mild version of morphine. This sounds awesome. (laughs) Volunteering is almost within a couple of percentage points as beneficial to our health as quitting smoking. It's interesting, too, is the study talked a lot about teenagers. It said this may be especially true for our kids, this generous lifestyle. Um, Adolescents who help and their motivation is simply to serve because they care about other people, they're three times happier than those who don't. And it shows that generous behavior, it reduces adolescent depression and suicide risk. And several studies have shown that teenagers who volunteer, who serve other people, are less likely to fail a subject in school, um, get pregnant in high school, or abuse substances. They also tend to be more socially competent and have higher self-esteem. Y'all listen to what I'm saying to you. The answer to all your teen angst is to be nice, okay? Like, there you are. Serve other people. It has a physical and a mental and emotional benefit on our bodies. And I just want to kind of close up with this because I know that when we talk about serving, serving has a real common face. Like, I don't know what is, what is running through your head right now when I'm talking about serving, but um, it tends to look like something involving the homeless, right, or the poor, or the sick, or there's sort of like this narrative that we attach the concept of serving to and think, well, I guess that's it. That's where it all is. But the fact is there are as many ways to serve as there are people, right? Some of us, we're wired differently. Our brains are different. Our skill sets are different. Some of us are going to build hospitals or medical equipment, or we're going to develop technology, right, that serves countless people, countless. Some of us are um, investigative types, or we're going to study, develop cures, or we're going to leverage economics, Um, to alleviate suffering for actual, real people. We have so many artists here who write stories and produce films and music that bring joy and inspiration and hope um, and goodness to so many people and beauty. We have tons in this room of enterprising types who are going to provide leadership and innovation and, and vision. They're starters and dreamers. And the things that begin in their mind end up having enormous effect as they serve humanity. All of us can serve. We can serve our bosses. We can serve our coworkers. We can serve our, our families and our neighbors and our friends. And there are endless ways to serve. And I want you to hear it that fit the framework of your personality and your skill set. And your temperament, okay, it's not supposed to be a drag. You're not supposed to be like, I'm doing this because I have to, but I basically hate this. Okay, that's, that's not the way it works. Science tells us that's not the way it works. So if you have not found that place, if you have not experienced your helper's high at this point, you maybe just haven't found your niche. Okay, you maybe have just narrowed in the idea of serving to such a small category that you can't find a way to make it work for you. I get to serve people in my wheelhouse, and it is such a joy. I get to serve people through words and communication. I mean, what a, what a tr- I can't believe I get to. 
Um, you can find what it is you do well and find so much fulfillment in the kingdom of God when you use it to serve other people. So funny, right? Because paradoxically, serving is the answer to so much that ails our bodies and our minds. And you know what we tend to do as people who are hurting or broken or suffering or struggling? We focus more on ourselves, right? Well, I'll just think about myself more, okay? And I'll grab all my friends and drag them down with me. But it's so funny what scripture tells us and what science tells us is that the act of serving and being generous is healing. It is actually healing and fulfilling in our own hearts and souls and minds. Here's Bartimaeus' request. I want to see, right? He didn't ask for riches or glory or fame or position. He just kind of wanted the most basic mercy. I just want to see. He was asking to be restored, restored to his community, restored to God. And we have a whole world of Bartimaeus's who just want to be restored. And we live in a world that's starved for mercy. You don't have to look far. And then Jesus says, listen, watch me. This is, this is how to do it. Do what I do. I came to serve. Um, I'm going to close real quick with Jesus' response to both of them. To James and John, you know, he goes on to say, oh yeah, you're going to drink this cup. And you're going to be baptized with this same baptism. And they did. They did drink that cup. James was the first disciple martyred. And we know that John was persecuted and abused and ultimately banished to exile. They spent the rest of their lives loving and serving the Bartimaeuses of their world. But to to Bartimaeus, he said, go, your faith has healed you, right? So to the ones who were angling to get up higher, he brought them down. But to the one who was already at the very bottom, he raised him up because that's how Jesus does. So I think this morning we just say, Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us because we want to see too. Will you pray with me?